0: Good morning. Are y'all you comfortable? It's, uh, you've already been warned. It's going to be a boring sermon, and uh, so there are. Uh, We've you know went through and we uh, put pillows underneath the pew if you needed, and the uh, blankets are in the overhead compartment. Good luck. Now, uh, it was really a few weeks ago as I was kind of considering. This series, I, I posted a question on, on Facebook. The question uh, went like this. It said, uh, what do you think are some of the most boring sections of Scripture? I had a few people that asked, well, is this a trick question? Yes, I'm totally preaching on this. I, I, I don't know how else I'm saying it's a sermon series, but immediately, like within seconds, if you read the first comment, it was from my brother. You know, you know what he said? You know my brother well enough, huh? He said, "Any sermon you, any scripture you preach on, Mitch." (laughs) Thanks. Well, the reason uh, I did this is I was curious what other people said. Where where other people had struggle reading through scripture, and there's a few of them. Some books were mentioned, full books of the Bible: Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Like that's over half of the the Pentateuch. (laughs) Like that's funny. Job. Anyone read through the friends' uh, correspondence in Job saying, will they just get over it? Come on, let's get to the end of the story when Job gets everything back. Um, The distribution of the land in Joshua. Descriptions of the temple. Not just one, but multiple descriptions of the temple. And of course, the genealogies. Which is where we get this understanding of begats. Begats is not a normal term for us, right? It's not how we usually talk about this. All that term means is it's from King James translation. It's an old way of saying they had a kid. They begat, which I think they could have said they had a kid, and it would have been just fine by me. But I don't know if it would make those sections any more interesting. The reason I wanted to propose or at least consider this series was because we're, we're approaching a new year, and I know what often happens in the New Year is people start making some New Year's resolutions. Sounds like a good time to make some resolutions. It's a New Year, new leaf turning over, all the things that they might want to do. And, and for a lot of Christians, one of the resolutions that I've heard uh, Christians make is, you know what, this year is going to be the year that I read through the Bible. Now, I don't want to sound holier than thou, but I'm actually surprised how many Christians have never actually read all the way through the Bible. Now, it makes complete sense... When you get to books like Leviticus, or you get to the distribution of land in Joshua, or you get to some of these things, you're like, oh, and you get out of the habit because it's almost seemingly boring. But I want to challenge you. If you've never uh, read the Bible all the way through, or even if you did it last year, this year, whatever it is, I challenge you to do it next year. If you need help with that, version uh, the Bible app, has wonderful plans to help you with that. I will post one next week in the sermon notes um, that has been extremely helpful uh, to me and some others that I know for sure, and uh, I, I highly encourage it because there's, some, there, there's something about reading all of it and saying, all right, Lord, what do you have for me today? And it seems a little strange whenever God says, all right, well, what I have for you is the genealogies. Lord, can I trade that for something else today? Can I look at something else? But see, the thing is, what we need to realize is all of this is in the Bible. And all of the Bible is inspired by God, and God is anything but boring. And so there's got to be a reason. In fact, that's the, the exact kind of idea that we get in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for, to teach what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. What Paul is referring to there was not his own letter that we now have part of the Bible. He's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about what we have already written in his time. All of it is inspired Or maybe we can look even at Hebrews uh, 4.12 says this, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Now all of that is what the word of God is meant to do. But the word of God can't do that if you don't allow it to do it in your lives. So whenever you skip over sections, you're actually missing part of What God has for you. So if you were to commit to reading through the whole Bible, starting Tuesday is the New Year's Day, right? Starting Tuesday, you're going to read every day, 365 days, you're going to read it all next year, 2019. Well, if you're going to start reading, it seems like a very good place to start would be Genesis. In fact, Genesis means the beginning. Seems pretty obvious. Let's start there. Now, if you were to dive into Genesis... You start reading through it, you know what you find in chapter 1? The beginning of everything. It's a creation story, and it's awesome. It's really cool to read all these things. It's quite a story to read of how God created all the earth. Chapter 2, as you turn to chapter 2, what you get is how God created humans in specific, and, and how their relationship works, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. You go to chapter 3, and the, and the story takes a little bit of a downshift whenever humans sin. And that sin calls for punishment. Chapter 4, you have a new beginning. You have the beginning of family. They have their their children. Adam and Eve have their children. You have the beginning of sibling rivalry. And you have the beginning of murder with Cain and Abel. So far, man, this is good. I can read all through this. Then you get to chapter 5. Chapter 5 starts off like this this is the written account of the descendants of adam when god created human beings he made them to be like himself he created the male and female and he blessed them and called them human when adam was 130 years old he became the father of a son who was just like him in his very image he named him seth after the birth of seth adam lived another 800 years and he had other sons and daughters adam lived 930 years and then he died when Seth was 105 years old, he became the father of Enosh. After the birth of Enosh, Seth lived another 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Seth lived 912 years, and then he died. When Enosh was 90 years old, he became the father of Kenan. After ke- the birth of Kenan, Enosh lived another 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Enosh lived 905 years, and then he died. I'm going to pause there. Because if I don't, one of us is going to fall asleep, right? Right? Now the, the cool parts. There's redeemable parts in this. You're like, dude, these guys lived forever. Well, they didn't, but they lived a really long time. And the other part is you're thinking, he was 130 whenever he had a son. <laughs> what? Right, Katie and I have uh, one of the uh, one of the twins with us. Or had did you ditch him already? Oh, good. He moved. He moved up a pew. I was like, great. Now we lost him. We had uh, one of the Alexander twins. Little one, okay? And it reminded me very clearly that I'm getting too old to be a parent of a little one. I'm already feeling that. Can you imagine being a parent at 130? Much less living that long? This, is, this seems crazy. There's some neat things in here, but let's be honest. Ten generations, ten times, you get a very similar message. The, the old translation would say that, that so-and-so begat so-and-so. And you would go on that someone was born, they begat someone else, and then they died. And the rotation continues. And it keeps on going. That that's the main flow. And it seems like why in the world are we listing all this? Surely someone cared, but maybe not me. It's seemingly boring. But there's something about it that I think we ought to look at. See, What is being said in every one of these genealogical sections, which there are a lot of them. There's several times throughout Scripture uh, that they are making. I'm going to focus on the Genesis 5 one, but there are plenty of times that this shows up. But the common theme that you hear is someone lived, they had a child, and then they died. Now that may not seem strange to us, because that's life. But I want you to know that that's not how life was supposed to be in the beginning If you're reading straight through Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, you would know that Genesis 5 was contrary to the way it was supposed to be in Genesis 2. Because in Genesis 2, you read that Adam and Eve were were created and they were placed in a garden. And in the middle of the garden, there was a tree. It's called the tree of life. Tree of life was supposed to give life. And in fact, the, the understanding of it goes that if you ate of this tree, you would live forever. It's like the fountain of youth, except it's more biblical. And so it's this... Never-ending life, if you eat of this. In fact, it's so much so that when sin entered the world, whenever humans uh, abandoned what God had desired for them, when Adam and Eve decided to take their own route, their own selfish desires, own selfish ambition, and decide that they didn't want to follow what God said of don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they sinned, there were repercussions. Chapter 3 of Genesis. Part of those repercussions Part of those, the reprimand, part of the punishment was they're kicked out of the garden. And it says, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. So in other words, death was not the way it was supposed to be. We were created for life and to live with God. But that's not how it worked whenever sin entered the world. See, sin has a consequence. The consequence is death. In fact, that's what Romans 6.23 says. It says, for the wages of sin is death. And we try to skirt around it. We try to postpone death as much as we can, don't we? We try to medicate it. We try to uh, not think about it. We try to do our thrill-seeking and anything that would help us to not think about death. But the thing is, death is going to happen to every human because all of us have sinned. A guy by the name of, uh, oh, I just lost his name, hold on. Tony Evans. Tony Evans uh, was telling a story. He said, you know, years back, death was, was a really somber and almost gruesome event. Not, not just the death of it, but afterwards, how we memorialized it. He said, we put the dead person in a wooden box, lowered it six feet into the ground with some pretty rusty, you know, ratty ropes, covered it with dirt, and called it good. Maybe put a little tombstone on there, maybe not. So nowadays, death is almost glamorized. A lot of funeral homes are almost elegant mansions. The casket is no longer just a simple wood box. It is some ornate, polished, beautiful thing with cushions and all this wonderful stuff. In fact, that's not enough. We hire a makeup artist to come and present you dead possibly better than you ever looked alive (laughs) not judging but we do all these things and then people will come for a funeral service to come and look at you to pay respect a preacher will get up and say all kinds of nice things about you if he's decent and he'll go through all this wonderful thing and then you'll go to the graveside and on your way you will ride in a limousine alright you may not have ever ridden in one before and you get that opportunity Other cars, you will have a police escort, you will be able to run red lights. Well, not very fast, but you'll be able to follow through red lights, and other people, other cars that aren't part of this funeral will stop, if they're respectful, will stop on the other side of the road as you go by. They'll say a few nice words, and instead of ratty ropes, it will be silver-lined winches that lower you into the ground. And you may not even see the hole, they'll cover it up. Because we've almost wanted to make sure that people realize, "Well, death ain't all that bad?" But the thing is, death is death. It always has been. Someone lives, and then they die. That's the flow. And the genealogies, I believe, are meant to remind us of that, that no one's going to live forever. Even these guys who were living like 930, 969 years, like they were living seemingly forever, they're going to die. They may live much longer than you ever dreamed, but they still have the same fate as you. And that's what we should be reminded of. So since we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and since the wages of sin is death, you would get this thought, you would get this thinking that we're all pretty much doomed, right? Well, we are, if we had no hope. You kind of wonder, did God have a plan for this tragedy? Well, I'm sure that you've heard God's plan for the dealing with our death before. We've seen it in the curse in Genesis 3, and it's all throughout Scripture, what God planned to do. But I want you to know that in Genesis 5, there's another picture of his plan. See, most of the uh, names in the Bible meant something. And, and so someone at one point said, well, what do all the names in, in Genesis 5 mean? So here's, here's what they mean. Adam means man. Most of you probably knew that. Seth means appointed. Enosh means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalel means the blessed God. Jared uh, means shall come down. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring, which is really fascinating because Methuselah died in the year of the flood. And so he's kind of wondering if his name is prophetic for when the flood would happen. i uh, not fully sure if he died in the flood, like he, he was wicked, or if he just died in that year. Uh, regardless, I digress. Lamech means the despairing. Noah means rest or comfort. Now, that may be fine in and of itself, but let's put those all together. Man appointed mortal sorrow. In other words, man's going to die. The blessed God shall come down teaching... His death shall bring the despairing rest. Did you know the gospel was in the genealogies of Genesis 5? I mean, seriously. I didn't know this. You don't want, you're not going to get this from a cursory reading. You're going to have to study. You're going to have to dive in deep to get this. But that's part of the point. Some of the most seemingly boring sections of Scripture really come alive whenever you do some study. Whenever you dive into it, you're like, Wow. Now, I'm not going to pretend that Genesis 5 is now going be, to be your favorite section of Scripture. That's not my point. My point is to help you get through some of those seemingly boring sections, to look for those little nuggets of saying, whoa, whoa what did God do there? See, in Genesis 5, God was saying, man is destined to die. But I'm going to send a Messiah. He's going to come down and teach. What he's going to do beyond that is he, he's going to die to bring that same man true life. That same man, he's going to bring rest. See, several times in the Old Testament, God is declaring his intention to deal with this problem of death. Isaiah 53 really spells it out even more. He says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We had a problem called sin, called death. God had a plan called a Savior. God came down to teach us how to live the life that he wanted us to live. How to make the most, referring back to a previous sermon series, the most of our dash. And then he died. So that the despairing could have rest in him. But here's the thing. That's not the only message that Genesis 5 can teach us. This is a unique genealogy on several aspects, but one is this. There are 10 generations mentioned, 10 generations of, of people mentioned, but there is only nine times where it says, and he died. Now, you would make sense that the last generation hasn't died yet, and so there's your nine. Did I do this right? There's eight. Eight that says, I mean, I'm, my math, apologize. There's only eight times it says he died. So it makes sense, the last one didn't die yet, so we're still one unaccounted for that didn't die. Well, if you know the story, it happens in verse 21. Then Enoch had lived 65 years. He became the father of Methuselah. After he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch was faithfully, walked faithfully with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived a total of 365 years, which was young in this list. Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. I've got so many questions about this text, and I don't have great answers because we're not given much. But I want to I give you a few things that it doesn't say. It does not say that Enoch impressed God with his moral uprightness. It does not say that Enoch was right with God because he kept all the rules. It does not say in any way that Enoch earned the option of not dying. I want to make you make it very clear all of those things. Here's what it says. He walked with God. That's it. But that's beautiful. There's something about that. It says he simply walked with God. Here's what I like. His name if you remember two slides ago was means teaching. I don't think that's haphazardly placed i think what is being said here is through the meanings of the names is that god has a plan to correct the problem that we have put on ourselves this problem of sin this problem as of death that he's going to send his son to teach and then that his son is going to die for us in our stead to give us peace and comfort i don't think it's any any mistake That Enoch's name means teaching because how how are we supposed to live? What is it that is supposed to look like in order to have this blessed God come to us teaching? What is he teaching? Well, look at Enoch's life. Well, what do we know about Enoch's life? Well, all we know is that he walked with God. He walks with God. See, walking isn't about being morally superior, walking is a relationship idea. You cannot walk, how how does the saying go, you cannot walk, uh, two people cannot walk together unless they have agreed upon the destination. You can only walk together in relationship. Other than that, you're walking apart. You're walking further away. The only way you walk together is you agree to have a relationship together. Isn't that what Christianity is all about? Relationship. Sometimes we forget this. Sometimes we think, well, all Christianity is about is doing all the right things at the right time for the right reasons. Don't get me wrong. Christianity is definitely about there are things that you need to do. Okay? But what it's about is not the doing. What it's about is the walking. It's about the relationship. The relationship that you have with God. Through the thick, through the thin, the relationship that you have with brothers and sisters in Christ. Through the thick, through the thin. If there's a repeated message throughout Scripture, it is that. We are in life together. Sure, we're all going to die, but for the time, we are here together. And what we do in this life truly does matter. And so what Enoch is trying to teach us is walk with God. You see, one of the things that I love is you go into the New Testament and you hear about this right relationship with God and what it looks like to have a right relationship and what you need to do in order to enter into this kind of right relationship. And it's giving, getting away from your self-centered ways, your own vain conceit, your own plan that you had for your own life and crucifying that, laying it at the feet of the cross. And then you go to the waters of baptism Now, that may sound strange to some people. Those of us who have grown up in this tradition know that this is just what you do. But for some people, they're like, why would you go and take a bath? Why would you go and get dunked in front of people? Why would you do something that sounds so silly and strange? Well, the reason is not just simply because Scripture said so. The reason is because it is an act of submission, You are actively killing yourself, metaphorically but actually spiritually, saying, I am crucifying my will and my desires. I am putting them, burying them in the waters. And I'm going to come out raised a new life. But listen to some of the language that Scripture says about this, or especially as we talk about it. When you're baptized, in that moment you receive the forgiveness of sins. All the sins that you've committed, even, even the sins you're going co- to commit, have forgiveness upon them, because that's what this act of God uh, doing in us, what his, his act is showing is the forgiveness in our lives. That's beautiful. So you get the re- forgiveness of sins. What's also awesome is Acts 2.38 talks about the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the God in you, so that you can walk in newness of life. Maybe Enoch was on to something, that we are called to walk with God, to walk in this newness of life. I've had people ask me before, will God ever do that again, as he did with Enoch? I don't know. But I'm going I'm to question someone that says he can't. Because the thing is, he did it. And if it served his purposes and his teaching, as it did with Enoch, he might do it again. But even if he doesn't, don't you want to be in that number? Don't you want to be that group of people that is found walking with God? Even if if it doesn't say in your eulogy, well, he walked with God and then was no more because God took him away. Even if that's not part of your eulogy, even if it says, you know what, here's your birthday, here's your death day. But he walked with God all the days of his life. See, that's the goal. And there's no better walk that you can have. And the thing is about a walk, it's agreeing on the destination. The thing is about a walk is not all of us might be there at the same place together because our God is big enough to walk with every one of us. And so this morning, I'm going to offer an invitation of a walk with God because God has been offering since the days of Genesis. To come and walk with him. He gave that invitation to Adam and Eve whenever he walked in the garden with them. Enoch understood it whenever he walked with God and then was no more. Scripture continues to point to this idea, we can have a blessed life when you walk with God. So this morning, if you have not had that walk with God, if you have not really entered into it, if you've not given up your life through the waters of baptism to, g- to gain a new life in him, then I want to encourage you. Walk with God this morning and every day of your life. If you need anything, elders and ministers will surround the auditorium, come find one, one of us, or just talk to the person beside you. I'm sure they'd love to pray with you as well. Whatever you need, we'd we let it be known as we stand, as we sing.